throw urine in the pain and see how they go. What works for them when they're stressed? And maybe that's cutting themselves or maybe that's burning themselves. That may not sound very good to you, but for them it's working. And when it's working is not when they're going to die. It's when things aren't working. So we're going to have a look at um, another serious topic this afternoon of suicide. Now, I don't know who's in the room. I don't know what your experience, how close it's come, um, whether you have direct experience of losing someone to suicide. And I just want to be very aware that this, again, is a very difficult area, as this morning was, and to honour your stories. And just to, again, reinforce what Sheree said earlier, that if you feel overwhelmed, just take some, get some fresh air, take yourself out. Um, and all of the events of today, in a way, may indicate to you that you do need a little bit more work yourself. You know, there, there may be a sense of, I could really do with a bit of, a bit of ministry or, or counselling or help. Because um, today's revealed that there's still some stuff there I need to look at. Robin Williams' death was so impacting for all of us that he would die at his own hand. Um, I think he's a, a man it was easy to have great affection for. Uh, such talent, such amazing life force in him, and yet he took his own life. In fact, in 2012, almost 4,600 men took their own lives in the UK. Suicide kills one person every 40 seconds, and it's one of those that this time it's the men who come out top in the statistics. And it's scary. The Department of Health statistical update in 2014, but on statistics again, said the majority of suicides continue to occur in adult males, accounting approximately for three quarters of all suicides are men. And it's the greatest cause of men aged uh, 20 to 49 in England and Wales. And that in itself is a shocking statistic. Do you realise we talk about committing suicide? Because until 1961, it was a criminal act. Mm. You commit arson and you commit suicide, you commit murder. We use the language of criminality. And uh, some even consider suicide an unforgivable sin. It's still in the culture of some religions. Until 1882, it was illegal to bury a victim of suicide in the church graveyard. And Anglican canon law still formally stipulates that the approved burial site should not be used in the case of a person who, being of sound mind, laid violent hands upon itself. Uh, notice to change this was recently submitted to the General Synod. The wheels turn slowly sometimes. But, you know, we, we're still living in, in, in a very old way of thinking about suicide in some ways. Suicide remains a silent killer, shrouded in shame, denial, and superstition, as if simply whispering its name will increase its power. This is an article in Christianity in January this year, Christianity Magazine. Now, one of the things in the ethical considerations of suicide, which is now becoming hot stuff in our world today, is do people have autonomy or should we always seek to preserve life? With uh, the possibility now to, to go abroad and, what's it called? I always forget it. Dignitas. Dignitas. Where you can actually go and legitimately choose to die. It is that you know, what our world is coming to? What do you think about that? Now, the medical profession would say that life is the most valuable thing we possess, and the sanctity of life is self-evident. So, anyone who questions this clearly is in crisis. Uh, they are ill in some way. They are abnormal, and suicidal feelings are short-lived and you must be protected when you are 
feeling that way. End of story. That's what the medical profession would say. But there is a whole other body of, of um, opinion that says suicide is the ultimate expression of someone's choice of how to live or die and should be respected. And any coercive attempt to prevent suicide contradicts the concept of individuals, of individuals as moral agents who are responsibly, sorry, ultimately responsible for their own actions. So we're back in the area of autonomy. If I want to die, it is my right to choose to die and you have no right to stop me. Now, something in us, I think most of us goes, no, that can't be right. And some of you may feel much more comfortable, as I do, with the first one, that if someone wants to die, something's wrong. And uh, we want to preserve life, certainly um, in the medical profession and, and in the paramedical professions, we want to keep people alive. But it gets really tricky sometimes. The person with a terminal illness such as, as cancer or motor neuron disease who chooses to die when and how they wish, clearly acting their own volition and not influenced by others, what about them? Is it absolutely out of the question? Is it, is it ethically, spiritually, morally wrong? Certainly it's illegal to assist in any way, although hospitalisation isn't necessarily enforced. And the Suicide Act of 1961 is absolutely clear that a person who aids, abets, counsels or procures the suicide of another or an attempt by another to commit suicide shall be liable on conviction on indictment to imprisonment for a term not exceeding 14 years. And when we looked at the, um, the clip from the Emmerdale compilation, uh, they were arrested for assisting a suicide. And, and one of Aaron's problems was, was that he wasn't convicted. He wanted to be punished for something which came to mean to him he had murdered someone. So a lot of the focus is on the people who, who choose to die, but very little I've heard on the piece, people who assist the dying process. It's a complex moral area. And you know, with our own belief systems, I know many of you are practicing Christians here today. Where do we sit with this? It's an interesting challenge to us. In this day and age, it's one of our 21st century issues that we have to look at. It's well established in English law that adults have the right to refuse treatment, even if to do so will result in their own death. It, it, it's an interesting one here. It's a fine line between the two. <coughs> What about the person who is depressed and overwhelmed by a painful experience and wants out? I, um, I had one of my supervisees rang up one morning, it was about 8 o'clock in the morning, and she said, oh, Pauline, I just had a text from my client. Um, she's just said, goodbye, Jackie, I'm really doing it this time. Thanks for everything. And she said, you know, this is, you know, so many suicide attempts. You know, Pauline, this time, I'm just going to let her go. Let her go and go to heaven, be free from her pain. Life is so awful for her. I'm just going to let her go. And I said, you can't, darling, you can't. You have to ring the police. You have to ring the GP. You have to set things in motion to save her life. We are under an ethical contract as counsellors. So she's side and she did that they broke the door down they rescued her they had one very very angry person but interestingly she went on to do well in therapy and she actually recovered subsequently but in that moment I had total sympathy with my supervisee who just said she's so unhappy life is so awful for her things are so terrible let's just let her go to heaven <laughs> And, and that I think we can relate to. Is it always right to hold them here? You know, in the sense of this, these, these are they're not always straightforward black and white issues. In the United States, counselors, professional counselors, are required to breach confidentiality to report a client's suicidal intent. We don't have that in the UK. If you come and tell me you want to kill yourself, I'm not legally obliged to uh, let the authorities know, but you, you know, you have to in the United States. Um, Counsellors could be liable for substantial damages for loss of earnings if the client's career 
were adversely affected by inappropriate ex um, disclosure. So that if um, if you, as I, as a counsellor, uh, reveal that you have been suicidal and, and it goes on record somewhere and then they don't get a job because of it, I can get sued. Um, so we as counsellors, <coughs> if you can understand our position, are treading a fine line a lot of the time. And then as Christian counsellors, um, which deep release counsellors are all practicing Christians, um, it, we are constantly struggling with the interface between our ethical guidelines and our, and our belief system. And pray for us, you know, help us <laughs> as we tread this fine line of, of working professionally, but also with a heart to bring life to people. Um, talk with one another. Have you ever, ever thought about this before? Where do you stand on it? Just chat with one another. Listen up your thinking. <laughs> I think the whole area of confidentiality is a huge one, actually. It is for us as counsellors, it is for you as pastoral workers. What do you keep to yourself and what do you share? And, and we are, in a, fa in, in a sense, in, a, in another way, like this morning, there are advantages to being a professional counsellor because you have a contract. And I can put in my contract what the score is, that if you work with me, um, if, if I think you're going to commit a harm to yourself or another person, I will have to take steps to protect you or that other person. Now, that's a personal choice I make. Interestingly, there is very little that you have to legally report. Um, we used to, in the early days of, of counselling, when I started back in the, the 90s, we used to think it was faintly amusing that you had to report any acts of terrorism. Now, <laughs> that has a whole, a whole relevance that it never had then. Um, you don't have to legally report child abuse. Did you know that? There is no legal mandate for us as counsellors to... There's a moral one, but not a legal mandate to report child abuse. We, we are treading through a, a minefield of moral and ethical decisions all the time. Now, in your settings, many of you work pastorally, you're not under the same professional guidelines, but you still have decisions to make all the time. And, you know, I would strongly encourage you to have some kind of protocols over, over confidentiality that you make clear to the people you work with. Um, I, I, that comes from my professional hat to say, what are you going to do if you are with somebody and they say, I'm going to tell you something and you cannot tell anybody else. I am going to kill myself on Friday, but you can't tell anybody else. You know, it, it's very difficult when you have no contract. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> that we get it easier than you in some areas. Because I, I was, I'm sorry, you signed a contract. You knew what I would do. If you told me that, you knew what I would do. I think it's really hard. <laughs> in a sense, um, when somebody says to me, I'm going to tell you something, but you're not allowed to tell anyone else. I don't buy that. I, I don't, I won't be held to ransom like that. I would say I can't guarantee it, so think carefully before you tell me. Get in. Remember, there isn't a gap. Where there isn't a gap, beware. Make a gap. <laughs> um, it's like when somebody wants a decision, say, I'll get back to you. Make gaps. In all your working with people, make gaps, because sometimes we just need you, particularly those of you who are extrovert, because you think out loud, and you don't realise you're thinking out loud. Introverts are wonderful. They have a reflective pause and then come out with wonderful wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just to add, as you've just said that, there's a wonderful man in this room who is full of wisdom and has said to me, Laura, whenever anybody says that to you, you need to say to them that I will only tell somebody that is part of the problem or the solution. Right. That was thin. I will, okay. I will only <laughs> tell somebody who's part of the problem or part of the yeah. solution. Okay. Interesting. Um, How interesting, as we say professionally. <laughs> sorry. I think this is, this is great that you're addressing it. Yes, Vince is sorry. making a stand to defend himself here. No, I'm not defending myself. Okay. No, we, we call it students of counsel. Students of counsel. 
stewardship of council. Yeah. Yeah, good. So you can tell us anything you want, but we may need to speak to somebody who's part of the problem or part of the solution. I actually think that's brilliant. Um, it, it's really important, though. I just want to reinforce again, put the space in. Don't immediately reply, think <laughs> what, what you're committing to, because um, you can get yourself into quite sticky waters in this area. Okay, now, I think this is really helpful. But it's been suggested that all suicidal people are ambivalent. Mm -hmm. Part of them wants to die, but part of them wants to live as well. And if you can connect with and help strengthen that part of them that wants to live, then you're on the right track. Making yourself a real person to them is important because that strengthens the connection. What you're trying to do is build trust. You want them to see you as a safe haven, as well as the attachment for them that they may never have had. Um, attachment is a whole big area that we work with, but it's a relationship, an emotional relationship with you. Um, and the more trust we build, the more likely we are to get disclosures. But really think ahead on this. What are you going to do with that disclosure? It's really important. Do you agree with that? I wonder that all suicidal people are ambivalent. Now, when I was um, just going up to university, I had a close friend, and uh, she and lived with her mother and her brother. And her brother, I would now suspect that her brother and her father were majorly on the autistic spectrum. As I look back now and, and consider the way they were and the way they behaved, I think probably that's what we were dealing with in a very severe form in both of them. Francis and I went up to university and very shortly after uh, Francis' mother, they were very, very close, mother and daughter, Francis's mother quietly walked out to the garden shed, drank paraquat and died. Now the shock effects, we were all in the same church, we were in the same youth group, the shock on the church was catastrophic. Nobody knew. She was a quiet, unassuming lady that just turned up faithfully to services. Uh, but inside, she was absolutely desperate and the only thing that kept her alive was her daughter. And once her daughter had gone, there was nothing more to live for. Was she ambivalent or was she absolutely certain that wasn't a dodgy method? That was a sure method. That was my first exposure to someone taking their own life and I, I reeled with disbelief. I, I couldn't get it and the church didn't know. Was, were frightened. How could we not have seen it? How did we not know? <coughs> the kind of things that we're used to with people wanting to end their life is more in this kind of area where I'm a failure, nobody cares about me, it doesn't make any difference if I live or die, everything is hopeless, I feel angry. And then the, the, I want to give you some uh, risk analysis, risk assessment, signpost to you some of the things to beware of in your pastoral care. When there's a series of upsetting events over a short space of time, in the life of someone who is already struggling. Okay. Now, I don't know what, what the story was with Frances's mother. I don't know if, if she would ever have shared. We were not in a culture where you shared your stuff. I'm going back to the, the um, 70s now. Uh, we just simply didn't talk about how we were feeling. Way pre-Diana. Honestly, it was, you know, everything began to change. In fact, you know, postmodernism is all about uh, expressing your feelings, being open, telling it like it is. And we date postmodernism from the fall of the Berlin Wall. So it's relatively recent. Young people growing up, now this is your total cult culture. You're so postmodern, you don't know you're postmodern. But I come from a, a modernist culture. Most of us who those of us certainly that were born in the 50s have got a whole other background to life. And we are desperately trying to work out how you do life these days. 
and getting our heads around a multitude of things that our young people are thinking, what's the problem? <laughs> it's just how it is. You know, we're, we're in a massive change around here. When somebody has a series of things happening, and, and uh, we are looking at different generations, and particularly of a generation that didn't share their feelings and didn't share um, uh, what was going on, and that, that deep internal uh, conflict and hopelessness, one more catastrophe or rejection can be the last straw. A feeling of being overwhelmed, there is no way out, and often the decision is made quickly without thinking, but I keep going back to Francis's mum. It wasn't made quickly. She had thought about it. She walked the length of the garden to do it. You know, and every time you think you've got something sorted, someone will leap out of the box. But having said that, there are some pointers that we can be particularly concerned, and you are carers or pastoral workers or professionals in this area, and these are things we are on the lookout for. The risk of suicide is definitely higher when a young person is depressed or when they have a serious mental illness, when they are using drugs or alcohol to cope when they're upset, and when they have tried to kill themselves a number of times or have planned for a while how to die without being saved. So if you have someone a young person particularly, young people are very, very vulnerable, um, if they have made a number of suicide attempts, don't think, oh, well, they never do it. It's more dangerous. It's more dangerous, actually. And certainly, if they're using drugs or alcohol, then that's, they're wide open to, to the kind of thinking that will take them down the, the, the route to taking their own life. Also, if they have a friend or relative who tried to kill themselves, it definitely makes a difference. There's kind of a weird kind of permission been given, but that's what you do. Statistically, the most common way of doing it is, is overdose. It's easiest to get. You, you, know, there's, there's, you just go from chemist to chemist to get the number of pills you need. Hanging is quite high. Um, using the car, carbon monoxide, cutting your wrists, drowning, jumping from a height, jumping from a moving vehicle, firearms, um, self-burning, that's often uh, religious connotations, and other. Um, the top of the reason given <coughs> is something to do with a relationship problem. It's human relationships that are often the, the final trigger. Mental health issues are high up there, Housing and accommodation problems, addiction and alcohol, financial problems, employment issues, bereavement, sexuality, legal problems, uh, educational problems and health. Um, we have the most extraordinary events happening around us with the refugees coming into the UK where I would imagine they're ticking so many boxes. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenges for us of, of these people coming through with their multitude of difficulties, I'm talking about refugees in flight now, um, we have a massive problem, a, a massive social care concern about what, what's happening. We, you can sense the country is reeling, it doesn't know what to do, mm -hmm. nobody knows what to do. Um, I don't, we, we haven't been directly affected by this, but certain other countries, as you well know, have got people with catastrophic problems in their lives, nowhere to live, no education, bereavement, all kinds of problems, um, housing. Can you see? They're all, <laughs> so many are there. One of the things I would say, that if you are working with someone and you're aware that they have, they are depressed, and you are increasingly concerned that they may be suicidal, beware the apparent improvement in health. You have the person you've been working with, very depressed, and they come to see you one day and they say, I'm feeling fantastic, really, really great. No, I feel totally different this week. I, I feel 
really on top of the world, you know, um, great service on Sunday or whatever, I'm really feeling high. Whoa, have you got a problem there? <laughs> you get your antennae right high up there because often when they've made the decision, they feel better. This is really important because it's so easy to think, oh, fantastic, that is really good. Something must have worked. No, you get much more concerned. Um, I remember the first time I, I learned that was my husband is a psychiatrist and um, he told me that many years ago. Um, he said it's well well known and well, that is when you really are all your antenna go up, hang on a minute. What have you decided to do? Um, just just share with one another. Uh, lots <coughs> and lots of things in that. Where is this taking you? What are you thinking? Again, if you can share any experiences you've had in this area, that would be helpful. Uh, this isn't a very long session, so we c we're going to have to go quite quickly through it, but I don't want to go so quickly that some key elements are missed. Okay? So just have a quick chat with you. I just want to go through some myths about suicide. This comes up all the time. Um, if they talk about killing themselves, then they won't do it. Um, it is not true. Talking about committing suicide may make them less likely to do it, uh, but you, it's no guarantee they won't go through with it. You, you can't rest back and think it's not going to be a problem. Um, the next one, if you mention suicide, you'll put ideas in someone's head. That is incredibly common. Uh, it's not true. Mentioning it will allow them to talk about it, and so is the possibility. You won't do any harm by asking. Um, and I, I am very clear on that. If I'm, when I was mentioning talking to my client who self-harms and when she has a lot of self-hatred, I will clearly say things like, you will tell me if this really gets worse. Please promise me that if you can feel you're going down and that you're thinking about taking your own life, please will you let me know. That I will contract. That I will try my best for anyway. I can't determine it, but I think if I can find the bit of them that wants to live, they will contact me. And so I bring it into the room, even if the person hasn't mentioned it themselves. I will say, how bad is this? You know, look them eyeball to eyeball. How bad is this? Are you thinking of doing anything to harm yourself seriously? Um, have you thought, you know, how far has it gone? Do you think about killing yourself? Tell me. I want to know. Let me help. You know, don't be afraid to talk about it. If they're not going to go, Oh, blow me, I've never thought of that. That's a brilliant idea. <laughs> Cheers, Hal. Don't panic. <laughs> People who talk about killing themselves, here's that phrase again, are just attention-seeking. Now, typically they want to stop the pain, their own or other people's, and they just can't find another way out. Offer them help, and we pray, hope and pray that the desire to die will fade. Okay, let's look at some of the, the risk assessments, the kind of things they're saying, I can't go on, nothing matters anymore. I'm even saying, I, I just want to, I just don't want to be here anymore. I, I'm thinking of just finishing it. We are talking about someone who's depressed here, and hopelessness and despair are the hallmarks of depression. And if a more person is talking in terms of hopelessness and despair and nothing is reaching them, they need closely monitoring. The depressed person often withdraws, um, either silently or physically or both. Be aware, this is hard for you because the bigger the church, the harder it is to keep tabs on people who haven't been for a while. But you will have your ways of looking at that. You're looking for a cluster of things that might be big warning signs. Behaving recklessly, some people will show a remarkable lack of self-care. Getting their affairs in order. Giving away valued possessions. You just get that niggle inside, hang on. <laughs> What's going on here? This feels like a goodbye. And this is something you just have to Trust your guts. What's the worst that can happen? You got it wrong. And any marked change in behaviour, attitudes or appearance, either up or down, is worth 
asking, what's going on? <laughs> You're not yourself. Talk to me. Tell me what's happening. And the more they trust you, the more likely it is that they will be able to be honest. And getting your affairs in order is an, an awkward one because that happened to me. I was seriously ill. Finally did come home from hospital. Um, and one of my thoughts was, having seen the part of men like this, thanking the Lord that there was only one letter that I needed to deal with. But one of the things that went through my mind was getting my affairs in order. Mm. Because I could have died. Absolutely. Um, so you've got to think, just because someone's getting their affairs no, in order doesn't necessarily mean... The point mean. is extremely well made. You're looking for clusters. Mm. Not individual things on no. their own. But the more boxes you tick, the more concern. I mean, I, I've got a little girl inside of me that thinks every time we go in an aeroplane we're going to crash. So um, I, I always want to make sure the wheel's up to date and everything. So that, that's a little fearful girl mm. in me that, that inhabits a very strange world. She's getting better. But Good. that kind of thing is of a completely different order because I'm yeah. not depressed, I'm not suicidal, I haven't had a whole load of awful life events. Um, so you're absolutely right. Any one of those is, can be fine. But the more there are, then the more serious it is. If people are abusing drugs or alcohol, this came up this morning, it constantly affects the state of mind, much more serious threat. Um, suffering any major loss or life change. I mentioned the little girl that was in the press recently whose mum died and she just couldn't go on. She was very young and she just hanged herself because she did not want to live without her mother. You know, I had to think, whoa, what's the backstory there? You know, what is going on here? We don't always know the full story. But you have enormous pastoral issues in churches. Um, and, and at least if we can have some... We don't want to go into panic. We don't imagine everybody's going to kill themselves. But you're looking for clusters of uh, behavior or life events or situations that would just make you a bit more aware of that person. Go and talk to them. <laughs> just make... If, if you have a sense they need particular input, don't keep away. Go talk to them. So increased risk if they're male, if they have a mental illness, if there's a family history of suicide or violence, if there is any sexual or physical abuse in the background, if there has been the death of a close friend or a family member, divorce or separation ending a relationship, Failing academic performance or impending exams and results, job loss, problems at work, impending legal action, recent imprisonment or upcoming release. Some people are so institutionalized by prison they don't want to come out. So these are the kind of things that if you've got people um, in your community who can tick a lot of these boxes, then they need support. Now we're moving into the area of, of some of the young people and the academic performances and things like this. This is a vulnerable time when results come out and there's expectations and that kind of thing. In 2008, there was a horrific incidence of young people's mm -hmm. suicide in Bridgend. I don't know if you remember this. I think every parent in the country went into meltdown because their young people over there just seemed to be dying right, left and centre at their own hand. 17 hangings, 13 months, one town. Um, this, and this, suicide is cool, says friend of death cult then. What is happening? What is happening in those situations? What's going on? Your self-harm is one thing, but, but suicide cults in our young people? Now this is where I hit the spiritual big time. <laughs> We have got to take this on spiritually. You know, something, a dynamic is happening here that, that is frightening and, and needs intensive prayer and intercession as to what is going on. I mean, I'm sure you do. It's what churches are about. Those of you that, that believe in the power of prayer and intercession, 
These are areas to pray for uh, the vulnerability of our young people and to pray extra hard for people with a cluster of life events. Um, I, I think we've kind of got the hang of these pro-ana websites for anorexia. We've kind of got the hang of um, what I showed you this morning about self-harming websites. The internet now is a powerful force for evil and a powerful force for good. And we have got to have our wits about us. We've got to check what our young people are doing and saying, you young people, you know, your, your influence is for good in your school. Um, you are key people to, to be on the lookout for those around you, but don't do it on your own. Don't, if you see someone that you think is very, very vulnerable, hear what I said this morning, don't go, go solo, don't go solo on it. You must get support, you must tell people. Um, it's the same for all of us, whatever generation, whatever age we are, that this, this is a big battle for our young people. I don't know whether you agree with me or not, but I fear sometimes that, that how vulnerable they are and how dangerous the world can feel. And thank God when we've got them around us, but don't take it for granted. Yeah? Let me just take you through three things that may be helpful. That the suicidal ideation, which is thinking about and talking about wanting to die. Suicidal intention moves it up a bit, where there's concrete ideas of how to do it. And suicidal action is when they've made or are going to make an attempt. Now, they're a bit like traffic lights. If they just talk about doing it, we have, um, when we train our counsellors, we say if, if your client is talking about suicide, you need to have in your contract that you will contact their GP. Again, we've got contracts. We say, this is what I will do. If you tell me you're suicidal, I will contact your GP. And I won't work with you unless you give me your GP's number. Now, you might like to think about that. <laughs> Whether it's enforceable at a pastoral level, I don't know. But we do have, we have the safety net of contracts. But I worked regularly, I have worked regularly with clients who constantly think about dying. But I ask them the question, are you going to do it? And they say, no, I just need to talk about thinking about it. And that needs discernment. But if I rang the GP every time they talked about it, I would lose all credibility. They're not going to do it. They just want you to know how bad it feels. Suicidal intention gets more focused. I am going to do it this way. And you realize there's a shift. Something has changed. They're now talking about how they're going to do it and even when. And of course, suicidal action um, the example I gave of, of my colleague friend who rang up in the morning and said, I've had the text, they've done it. So do you see this? You've got to have a discernment because if every time somebody says, I just feel like dying, you think, oh, where's your GP? You know, they're not going to be able to talk to you. Do you get the difference? Um, but it's that middle one. That, that's the tricky one. Um, I, I don't know if this works for you, but I do say, please, please call me if this gets worse. Please call me first. If you really, really want to end your life, could you just call me first? Um, whether they do or not, at least I've tried. It's a difficult area. You may never, ever have had this. You may never have this in your community. It may never come your way. It may never come across your path. Not at school, not in church, not anywhere in your family or anything. But it might. And at least we've spent an hour looking at what might happen together. The SLAP guidelines can be helpful. You have these. Um, S stands for specific plans. If there is a plan, is it detailed or is it just vague? The more specific the details, the greater degree of risk. L stands for the lethalness of the means. How lethal is the means selected? How dangerous in the eyes of the client? The more lethal the method is, the greater the risk. Now, taking paracetamol is 
in the middle somewhere. Um, a difficult one. But if they're going to go to the garden shed and bring paraquat, that's serious. Okay. Access. A is for access to the means of suicide. How easy is it for them to do that? How difficult to obtain what they want to use. If they say, I'm going to get a gun and shoot myself, do you have a gun? No. Then it's going to be very difficult for them to get one. You get the idea. So it's not easily accessible. Previous attempts. Have there been other suicide attempts? P for previous attempts. What happened? And P, proximity to help. Is there someone available to support the person when they need them? And the greater the distance, um, the greater the risk. So that can be quite helpful to you, the SLAP guidelines, in assessing the risk when working with someone who wants to die. Yeah? Do you get the sense of that? It's just there. If ever you need it, keep it handy so that you can quite openly show them you're taking this very, very seriously. So someone's suicidal, do take them seriously and respect them. They are very, very unhappy, so much so they don't any longer want to live. Be there for them, listen to them, offer them hope and encourage them to choose life. I, since I learned about finding the part that wants to live, it has changed my way of working with suicidal people all the time. I work majorly with dissociation. I'm very comfortable with the fact that there are lots of different bits to us. We have lots of different parts. I've talked about there's a child bit in me. There's a book over there about the inner child. And we are all different people at different times. And if there's a bit of me, that, uh, a bit of the person that's saying, I don't want to die. I want to live. I'm okay. To find that and build a relationship with them. And sometimes to say, what would stop you doing it? I hear you want to die. What would stop you? You haven't done it yet. Well, my kids might find me. Or, you know, I, I've got a dog. You don't know what is keeping them alive. And say, so, well, that's really important. Let's look at that. Not in the sense of what will happen to them if you do it. Work within their frame of reference. What is your thinking about that? Why does that stop you? Tell me. Well, what if they found me? You know, what if? What would happen? I can't do that to them. You found the bit that wants to live. Does that make sense? You found their reason. You found why they haven't done it yet. And that's enormously helpful to perhaps hold them in life. Stay in more contact with them. When I have a client who's suicidal, I connect with them every day. And if they go home in a really unhappy state, I want to know they've got home safely. Um, you know, one of my clients said she was driving home one week and she said there was a big lorry behind and there was a big lorry in front. All I had to do was time it right and I've done it. And that made me concerned. My alarm bells went up then she's actively thinking when she's out there on the road, this is how I'm going to do it. And so I said, right, you, you text me when you get home. I want to know you've got home safely. She said once, nobody would care if I died. And I said, absolutely wrong. I am now a massive problem for you because you can't say that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I am causing you big trouble because I would be utterly devastated if you took your own life. I don't know what I'd do with myself if you killed yourself. Big problem. You can't use that line anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it's true. Um, I want you to live. I don't want you to die. It's okay. It really is okay. You, it is important to seek professional backup and support and to look for other supports that they can draw on. This takes us back to this morning. The Samaritans are fantastic. That's the number if you don't have it. Um, pastoral, uh, church, family if possible, family's complex, but if it's safe, then you need a team. You need people around them. We've got to see what's going on. How can we support? Offer prayer if, if appropriate. For me, it's always appropriate. I will pray with them at the time. I pray with my clients. They are all Christians, my, my clients. They often want prayer. 
Um, and I offer to pray with them and keep praying myself. If they have already, for example, taken an overdose and they've, uh, like the, the call, the text my colleague, if you're with them, um, call an ambulance. If you're not with them, find out where they are and get as many details as you can. Now, GPS systems on phones are quite helpful. If you keep them on the phone and you get someone to ring the police, you can track the phone. They have not died yet. Part of them has reached out to you. The part that wants to live, they have not done it yet. So there's hope. Um, explain, when you call the ambulance, explain clearly who you are and what your relationship is. I am a pastoral worker in their church. I am a friend. I am their counsellor. Explain who you are and why you're calling. Get professional backup. And again, I can say this quite happily to counsellors because they'll have it on their contract. And hand them into God's care for any sort of looking after yourself when you're working with someone who's very depressed and uh, is, is talking suicide a lot do get extra support for yourself we're in that area of personal traumatization by this it can overwhelm you it become very difficult do not do it on your own you know i if, if you've got yourself into that position um, it's really important somehow to communicate to the person I have to have support for this. I have to look after myself. You're also modeling something to them. I am modeling self-care to you. I have to have support. I can't do this on my own. I have to tell someone else. Um, this is about you looking after you. When somebody does commit suicide, everybody wants to blame somebody. When I'm, if it's me, I'm angry with the family if they screwed up the person. The family is angry with me because they think I caused all the problems or I didn't save them. Everyone is angry with the person who died. You do feel angry when someone takes their It's a very aggressive act, actually. That's the thing about suicide. There is no suicide without other people being hurt. It is not a private act between a person and themselves. Nobody is an island unto themselves enough that their suicide doesn't affect other people. And when you're the therapist, you get hurt if it happens. But also the family members, the loved ones, no matter how complex their relationship to the individual might have been, they get hurt. And another group you need to look out for is children of people who have taken their own lives. The impact on a child of losing a parent to suicide is huge. The sense that their mother or father would rather take their own life than be there for their child is intensely damaging. Losing a parent during childhood puts someone at greater risk for both suicide and violence. I just want to close this. Um, it, it's, it's a hard, hard thing to teach and a hard thing to listen to, but you don't get many of these training days to the pound nowadays. So let's just hit it this hour. Let's just be grown up and do it. Some of you may know of um, uh, Rick and Kay Warren, whose son, their UK pa US pastors, and uh, their son Andrew killed himself. Very, very well-known, high-profile pastors in the States. And Rick and uh, Kay, rather, posted on her Facebook page, please don't ever tell someone to be grateful for what they have left until they've had a chance to mourn what they've lost. It will take longer than you think is reasonable, rational, or even right, but that's okay. I have to tell you the old Rick and Kay are gone. They're never coming back. We will never be the same moves me every time. That post received 50,000 likes and 11,000 comments, mainly from people who wanted to remember those they lost. This morning we were touching on the people who love those who are self-harming, the mums, the dads, the family, the carers, the pastors, the church family, 
who are deeply troubled um, by seeing someone hurting themselves. This afternoon more than ever, when someone takes their life, it has a devastating effect. Um, we will also be working with those mums, those dads, those people who've been bereaved. We will be working with them to give them back a sense of who they are in the aftermath of suicide. So when someone has been bereaved by suicide, the principles are the same for any bereaved, um, work with the bereaved. And this is picking up some of the points Anna made this morning about be present but don't force the conversation. We all know that Job's comforters were the most effective when they said not um, and didn't try to fix, stop trying to fix Job. So sometimes just being present, listen when they want to speak, allow them to express their emotions, make them a casserole. When my parents died, they died very, very short distance between them, and we'd open the door in the morning. There was a casserole on the, on the doorstep. We never knew who'd left it, but that oh, that was just amazing. It was worth ten, ten, you know, lots of words. Welcome conversations about the person who's died. Don't try to move them on. Avoid platitudes. Be honest when you don't know what to say. And defend them against unwelcome intrusion. Put a little protective barrier around them so that Flossie Higginbottom, who always goes and says the wrong thing, is kept away. <laughs> and I know you've got one. <laughs> it was... Um, it was interesting that, that uh, uh, one of my colleagues, her, her husband, died very suddenly, um, had a heart attack two weeks ago. And you know, I don't know those of you that use Facebook know that it tells you when someone has a birthday. And two days after he died, I saw it was her birthday, <laughs> uh, the wife. And um, I just sent her a, a, a little message and I just said, oh Liz, words fail me, it's your birthday. Sometimes words fail me <laughs> is more powerful than trying to come up with something meaningful or, or deeply spiritual or, or, or incredibly targeted or prophetic. Just say you don't know what to say, but you're there. I almost feel like I want to say, I'm so sorry it's been so heavy and hard. <laughs> but hats off to you for doing this day. I am so impressed that you've all come and that Vincent... Perry, you've, you've put the day on uh, and that you've all made the effort to come. It's such a difficult day. We've got about 10 minutes left, so um, I'm just going to get you to, to chat with one another and there might be time for a couple of questions. Um, okay, just have a quick recap on the whole of the afternoon.